Our gracious Father, we ask that you would lead us to the cross over and over again. Father, when things are wonderful, bring us to your feet to praise you. When things are difficult, bring us to your feet to praise you and to ask for your help. Father, no matter what it is, your word tells us to set our mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and to not set our mind on the things of the earth. And so, Father, as we continue to worship you, as we study your word tonight, I pray for your grace, for your mercy, for your wisdom. I pray that your spirit would be our teacher. In Jesus' name, amen. So the last two weeks, in chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8, all right, 5, 6, and 7 were the building of the temple. Chapter 8 was the dedication of the temple. And after all of that was said and done, God appears to Solomon for a second time. That's where we pick up in verse 1 of 1 Kings chapter 9. And it came to pass, when Solomon had finished building the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and all Solomon's desire, which he wanted to do, that the Lord appeared to Solomon the second time, as he appeared to him at Gibeon. And the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your supplication that you have made before me. I have consecrated this house which you have built to put my name there forever, and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. Now, if you walk before me as your father David walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded you, and if you keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, You shall not fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. But if you or your sons at all turn from following me, and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them. Then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them. And this house, which I have consecrated for my name, I will cast out of my sight. Israel will be a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And as for this house, which is exalted, everyone who passes by it will be astonished and will hiss and say, why has the Lord done this to this land and to this house? Then they will answer, because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought their fathers out of the land of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshipped them and served them. Therefore, the Lord has brought all this calamity on them. So God appears to Solomon a second time. It says up there in verse 1, that, or sorry, in verse 2, that he appeared to Solomon as he appeared to him at Gibeon. Uh, when he appeared to him at Gibeon, it was in a dream. So my guess is that that's how he appeared to Solomon this time. He says that he has consecrated this house, that he has put his name there and my eyes and my heart will be there perpetually. And this is something I think we should all keep in mind for us. God is with us. He is for us. He will never leave us. And nothing will ever separate us from his love. I'm going to have you turn two places. So if you want to find them both, that would be fantastic. We're going to go up to Psalm 16, and then we're going to go all the way up to Romans chapter 8. So if you want to make your way to Psalm 16, you can put a finger up in uh, Romans chapter 8. You don't have to. You can just turn there in a moment. But I'm going to turn there right now, so that when we're done in Psalm 16, I'll be all speedy about getting to Romans chapter 8. But that just means I'm going to be slow getting to Psalm 16. You guys ready? Psalm 
16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in shale. Nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. A nice little prophecy of Jesus' resurrection right there. You will show me the path of life. And your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now that whole wonderful psalm is about God being for us, essentially. I mean, there's just wonderful statements in here. You're my portion. You maintain my lot. You give me counsel. You instruct me. I set the Lord before me. You're at my right hand. I will not be moved. So on and so forth. But there's one statement here that I really want to focus on, and it's verse 8. And the first half of verse 8 says, I have set the Lord always before me. Now, in the Latin Vulgate, that phrase, I have set the Lord always before me, is corum deo, C-O-R-A-M, and then deo. And it literally means to live before the face of God. And the whole purpose of that statement, which became a motto um, and a mantra, and, and people used it a lot a long time ago, was to have a constant reminder that we are always in the presence of God. There's never a time when we're not. Now, on one hand, uh, that might be a little scary because that means he sees all the stupid things we do. He knows all the wicked thoughts we think. He knows when our actions don't line up with the attitude of our heart. And I'm not saying all that to make you feel guilty. I'm just saying it because it's true and we have to remember that. But at the same time, he always loves us. His grace and mercy are always available to us. His strength and guidance are always right there in front of us. He's always with us. And so we can live our, face, our faces. I was going to say we can live our faces before the life of God, which is fine. And we can live our lives before the face of God. Coram Deo. In Romans 8, we know this verse. I use this verse a lot because it's amazing. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If there's ever a time when we doubt that God is going to come through, and I think we all do that from time to time, look at what he was willing to give. He, this is the argument that Paul is making. If God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't spare his only son. Do you really think there's something that he would withhold from us? If it was good. Now he may withhold things from us because we think they're good, but they're not. But he will not withhold anything good from us. Anything that we need. Verse 33. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. 
Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Keep in mind, all of those things are things on earth. Physical realm. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, naked, right? That's all physical things on earth. In verse 37, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Verse 38, but I'm persuaded that neither death or life, angels or principalities, powers, things present nor things to come, height, depth, or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Now that list, for the most part, is in the spiritual realm. Death, life, angels, principalities, powers. Essentially, nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God, whether that's something physical or something spiritual or emotional or mental. Even death cannot separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And I say all that because when we go back to 1 Kings, this was the promise that God made to Solomon. If he did what? If you walk before me as your father David did and keep my word. I can't say it enough, but we must walk in the truth of God's word. Over the last couple weeks between Sundays and Wednesdays, I've brought up these two scriptures a number of times. So you don't have to turn there, but uh, Matthew 7, 24 through 27. And Jesus said, who is a wise man? It's the one who hears these sayings of mine and does them. He's like a man who built his house on a rock. And the rains came and the winds blew and the flood rose and beat against that house. But it didn't move because its foundation was on the rock. The foolish man is the person who hears my word and does not do it. He builds his house on the sand. And when all those storms come, the house falls and great is its fall. When we get to chapter 11 next week, you're going to see how great the fall is for Solomon. It's a fancy way of saying what James 1, 21 through 25 tells us, to be doers of the word and not hearers only. And I love the illustration he uses there. I've always loved that illustration. Because if you, if you read the Bible, right, he calls it the perfect law of liberty there in James. And you don't do what it says. You're like a person who looked in a mirror and as soon as you turned away from the mirror, you forgot what you looked like. Now, I've never done that. I've looked in a mirror and kind of, you know, thought maybe I, this is as good as it gets, you know, <laughs> or whatever. Um, but I, I've never turned away and gone, man, where was my nose again? It's always there. And that's what it's like. You look into the word, guidance, wisdom, instruction, correction. And if you don't do it, you might as well look in the mirror and then just forget what you look like. He tells him that if his sons fail to follow me and go after other gods, that he is going to cut off Israel from the land and he will cast this house from his sight. And it's incredible to me because it actually happened twice. The first time was at the end of Judah uh, when Nebuchadnezzar took Judah captive. They destroyed the temple. And then we talked about this last week or the week before. You know, Zerubbabel came back. He rebuilt it. Nebuchadnezzar expanded on it. And then after the Jewish nation rejected Jesus as Savior, and Jesus warned them of the consequences of rejecting them as Savior. Remember, he told them when the disciples, they were walking by the temple, and he said, do you, oh, they were like, oh, do you see how you know, beautiful and how big the stones are and all this? And Jesus looked at them and he said, what, there, there's going to come a time when one stone will not be left upon another. He warned them, but they wouldn't listen. And in 70 AD, Titus, the son of Vespasian, who was the emperor, when the Jews revolted, against Rome, came in and destroyed Jerusalem. They demolished it. 
And not only did they demolish it, history tells us that they crucified about a million people. I mean, that's a lot of people. But they took everybody. One of the soldiers lit the temple on fire. And when he did so, all the gold between the stones melted. Or all the gold that covered the stones melted between the stones. And they're not going to leave, right? Remember, we we got an idea of the cost of the temple. It was a lot. And when Herod remodeled it, it was probably worth more. They tore the temple apart brick by brick to get all the gold. God destroyed his own house because of the disobedience of his people. And that's when Israel got renamed Palestine and the Jewish people were without a homeland for 1947 years. Okay, that's not true. 1947 minus 70. I can't do math that fast. So a little 1880 1,870 years, give or take. No people has ever survived as a nationality without a homeland for more than two generations. Yet the Jewish people did, because God isn't done with them. The point I'm getting at, God does not warn us needlessly. Right? We know David made a mistake. Okay, I take that. I actually wrote David made mistakes. I don't know why I made it singular. David made a lot of mistakes, but he always returned to the Lord. What is being spoken of here is what we call apostasy. This is a falling away from the covenant relationship with God. God knows this can happen, and he's warning Solomon. Solomon and his descendants do not Listen to the warning. In Hebrews 10, 35 through 39, we read this. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. That word or phrase, draw back, that's used there twice is the word apostasy. It's the same word. We are being warned. Why would God warn us if it wasn't possible? Yes, he does love us. Think about Peter. Right, I like to think about Peter. Because I imagine if if Peter was alive right now, well, okay, I take that back. He is alive right now. He's doing better than we are. If Peter was alive here on earth right now, I think Peter and I would get along. Uh, He just seemed to have the, the same spirit of obnoxiousness that I do. And... After Jesus revealed that one of the twelve was going to betray him, Peter looked at him and he said, Lord, I'll, I'll never betray you. And he said, well, tonight you're all going to be scattered because of me. Fulfill the prophecy, strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be shattered or scattered. I just read this. I just finished Matthew. And uh, Peter said, if they all forsake you, I will not forsake you. Even if I have to die with you, I will not forsake you. Anybody want to guess what Peter's problem was? Two things. One was pride. Two, he was failing to listen. Because Jesus said, you're all going to run. And I think the proper question would have been, okay, Lord, well, when we run, what should we do? Right? Because he wasn't saying, you know, don't run or this might happen, but hopefully it won't. He goes, you will run. Okay, Lord. Well, if we're going to run, then tell us what to do when we run. I think that would have been the proper question. Too late. That was a while ago. And the second was pride. I could never do 
this. Right? We, we read it at CR. It's a verse that I've had memorized almost the entire time I've been a Christian. 1 Corinthians. <laughs> I have it memorized, but I can't remember where it's at. <clears throat> um, I think it's 1 Corinthians 13.10 or 10.13. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's the verse. I just for All of the addresses run away from my head. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That was Peter. Lord, I'll stand. If they all run, I'll stand. If I have to die with you, I'll stand. Jesus goes, no, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. Never. I'll, I'd never do that. I'm kind of thinking Solomon at this point in his life was like, well, Lord, I built you this house, right? This isn't written here. I'm, I'm, I'm adding color commentary. But I'm just trying to put myself in Solomon's place. If I had seen the things that Solomon had seen, if I had done the things and experienced the things that Solomon had, had been through, in the back of his mind, he's probably thinking, well, Lord, you know, I, I appreciate you telling me this, but I'm not going to leave you. You made me king of Israel. You you let me build this house. I'm not going anywhere, Father. I'm not doing anything. I'm I'm you know, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking that was in his mind. I can't prove it. I might be wrong. Maybe that wasn't in his mind. But maybe it was. And the only reason I say that is because there's been times where that's in my mind. Where I say, I'm oh gosh, I could never do that. But the reality is I could. Because I'm a sinner. When we get to chapter 11 next week, it says in verse 4, When Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart after others' gods, and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God. That simple. One sentence. And you know, it wasn't a quick fall. I'm sure it was gradual. The more wives he got and the more pagan gods they brought in. But... Did you find it? Okay. It's in 1 Corinthians. I know that much. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We are not going to be those who draw back to perdition, but who believe to the saving of the soul. And we, like it said in Psalm 16, oh, I'm going to turn back there because I don't want to quote it wrong. Look, I made a big old circle on accident. There's no accidents in the kingdom of God. My goodness is nothing apart from you, up in verse 2. And because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. That's how we take heed lest we fall. We know that our goodness is from him. And we know that with him at our right hand, he is the one who can keep us from moving. Now, I promise we're going to move a little faster. There was just too much there to take it quickly. And you quit your snickering, John. Verse 10. Now it happened at the end of 20 years when Solomon had built the two houses, the house of the Lord and the king's house. Hiram, the king of Tyre, had supplied Solomon with cedar and cypress and gold as much as he desired. Then King Solomon gave Hiram 20 cities in the land of Galilee. Then Hiram went from Tyre to see the cities which Solomon had given him, but they did not please him. So he said, what kind of cities are these which you have given me, my brother? And he called them the land of Kabul, as they are to this day. Then Hiram sent the king 120 talents of gold. Um, the cities that Solomon gave Hiram there, Kabul, actually, Kabul is still there uh, in the area of Galilee. Uh, there's a different Kabul that starts with a K that's in Iraq, if I'm correct. But um, this Kabul, there's, there's still a village there in Israel, uh, in Galilee. Well, what was the problem with it? It was rocky. You couldn't grow anything. You couldn't really um, graze your animals there. I mean, maybe it had a nice view of the Sea of Galilee. Maybe, maybe that's what Solomon was thinking. Ah, it's a nice vacation home, right? But the cities themselves were useless. Um, and in repayment, Hiram gave him, uh, you know, two, almost two and three quarter million dollars worth of gold <laughs> in modern day uh, money. But 
We really don't know if there was any outcome of that later on, but that's what it was. Verse 15. See, I told you we'd move faster. And this is the reason for the labor force which King Solomon raised to build the house of the Lord, his own house, the Milo, the wall of Jerusalem, Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had gone up and taken Gezer and burned it with fire, had killed the Canaanites who dwelt in the city, and had given it as a dowry to his daughter, Solomon's wife. And Solomon built Gezer, Lower Beth, Horan, Baaleth, Tadmor, Tadmor in the wilderness in the land of Judah. So you gotta, you got to like this. You remember when, when um, David wanted to marry Saul's daughter, um, Michael? Saul, uh, Saul said, fine, go get me the, the foreskins of a hundred Philistines. <laughs> and, uh, and so David went out and he got him the foreskins of 200 Philistines. Uh, as I said way back when we studied that, I still hope that David killed them first. Uh, but <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying as a guy, if you're going to do that, just, just kill me, get it over with. Um, so as a dowry to Solomon for his daughter, Pharaoh goes up to the city, kills all the people there, burns it with fire and says, here, Solomon, you can have this town. So Solomon rebuilt it. It's actually where his wife lived until her house was ready. Uh, it's just kind of, kind of crazy. Uh, along with these other cities. We'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. Uh, verse 19, all the stored cities that Solomon had, cities for his chariots, for his cavalry, whatever Solomon desired to build in Jerusalem, in Lebanon, and in the land of his dominion. All the people who were left of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, who were not of the children of Israel, that is, their descendants who were left in the land after them, whom the children of Israel had not been able to destroy completely, from these, Solomon raised a, labor, a forced labor as it is to this day. Why not kill them? I'm just throwing that out there. They made a deal with the Gibeonites, so they couldn't kill them. Joshua made that mistake. But all the rest, at this point in time, when they are at the zenith of their power and influence and wealth, why not finish the command that God had given them? I don't know. <clears throat> verse 22 but to the children of israel solomon made no forced laborers because they were men of war and his servants his officers his captains commanders of his chariots and his cavalry others were chiefs of the officials who were over solomon's work 550 who ruled over the people who did the work but pharaoh's daughter came up from the city of david to her house which solomon built for her then he built the milo that we mentioned that again we're going to talk about that now three times a year solomon offered burnt offerings and peace offerings on the altar which he had built for the Lord, and he burned incense with them on the altar that was before the Lord, so he finished the temple. King Solomon also built a fleet of ships at Ezion Geber, which is near Elith, on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. Then Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, seamen who knew their sea, to work with the servants of Solomon. And they went to Ophir, and they acquired 420 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. Quite a bit there. Uh, so we have record of his other building projects of how he and Solomon worked together to get large quantities of gold. Uh, so Solomon built the ships, Hiram provided the sailors. And I imagine, even though it doesn't say it here, they, they probably split the spoil. Um, where Ophir is, uh, is a matter of conjecture. Uh, they are not quite sure, but we're going to talk about that in chapter now, the Milo. So here's the cool thing about the Milo. It is believed uh, that the Temple Mount, where currently the Dome of the Rock Mosque sits, at the base of which is the Wailing Wall, or the Western Wall, uh, which at one point in time was part of the foundation of the Temple, didn't exist originally. But Solomon built it. And that's what the Milo is, because that's what the word Milo means. It is kind of like a, a raised area. Uh, and so it's believed that Solomon actually built the Temple Mount. And he did this, um, like you can go to the Western Wall, and apparently, I, I personally have never seen it, but I've heard you can do this, that you can go to the Western Wall, and they, they dug underneath it to see what was there. And for about 60 feet down, 
it's filled with garbage. Now, when I say garbage, I don't mean soda cans and paper. I mean stone and dirt and just all the stuff that they didn't need. They threw down there and then they covered it and built up from there in order to create the Temple Mount. Uh, it goes down about 60 feet. So at some point in time, uh, the elevation of the Temple Mount was much lower than it currently is. Uh, the, uh, currently, the, uh, the Muslims who control the Dome of the Rock Mosque will not let the Israelites do archaeology up there because uh, they're afraid they're going to find the actual temple, which they would because that's where it was. Uh, there's a few cities mentioned like Hazor. Hazor was an entrance city uh, coming towards Jerusalem. Then there's Megiddo. Um, Megiddo become, is famous because of the book of Revelation. In Revelation, it is where the battle of Armageddon occurs. A lot of people like to use the word Armageddon to refer to the end times. It's the name of a valley, the Valley of Megiddo or the Valley of Armageddon. Um, it is not the name of the end times, even though Bruce Willis was in a really good movie by that name with uh, Ben Affleck and Steve Buscemi and, and uh, Billy Bob Thornton. It's a good movie. Yeah, Liv Tyler was in that. Guys, you guys, John, are you the only, have you seen Armageddon? Oh, you need to see Armageddon. You'd like it. But those were all mentioned. They were all built up under Solomon. The three times a year that he would have offered sacrifices were most likely uh, the three feasts that all the men were required to attend, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. And with that, we get to chapter 10. And I know you're thinking, oh, but are we going to get through chapter 10? Yeah, chapter 10 is not that long. And uh, the second half of it is just describing to us how wealthy Solomon is. And it's kind of disgusting, but we're going we're gonna to get there. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels that bore spices, with much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. So Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, and you guys remember that, right? We, we went back and, and when we, they talked about all the food that he served daily, it was enough to feed like, um, was it 15,000 people or something insane like that? I'd have to go back and check my notes, but it was a lot of people. Uh, but she saw this, right? She saw the service of his waiters, their apparel, his cupbearers, his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord. There was no more spirit in her. It's another way of basically saying it took her breath away. And she said to the king, verse 6, It was true, which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. However, I did not believe the words until I came and saw with my own eyes and indeed the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity exceed the fame of which I heard. Happy your men, sorry, happy are your men, and happy are these your servants who stand continually before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who delighted in you, setting you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord has loved Israel forever. Therefore he made you king to do justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold, because he needed more gold uh -uh. and spices in great quantity and precious stones. There never again came such abundance of spices as the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Also the ships of Hiram, which brought gold from Ophir, brought great quantities of almig wood and precious stones of Ophir. And the king made steps of the almig wood for the house of the Lord and for the king's house also harps and stringed instruments and singers. There never again came such almig wood for nor has the like been seen to this day. Now King Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba all she desired. Whatever she asked, besides what Solomon had given her according to the royal generosity, and that's what she did when she gave him the gold and the spices and all that, that was just common. If one, royal, one member of royalty came to visit another one, you brought gifts, and you got gifts in return. So she turned and went to her own country, she and her servants. Now, the Queen of Sheba. There is argument about where Sheba was. Some think that it was part of Arabia, like the Arabian Peninsula, um, which would make sense because you could get there 
uh, from Israel. Some think it was Ethiopia, which is on the eastern coast of Africa. Sorry, I needed to remember a continent there for a moment. Um, we're going to get into, uh, in just a moment, why it was probably Ethiopia. But scholars like to argue about stuff like that, and they can. It doesn't really matter. The Queen of Sheba came to visit. She blesses God, saying that he made Solomon king because of his love for Israel. She's amazed at the wisdom, saying, right, when I heard about you, I didn't believe it. And now that I'm here, only half of it, right? I only heard half of it. It's way beyond what I could have ever imagined. And it says there in verse 13, that King Solomon gave the Queen of Sheba all that she desired. Now, don't get in mind that she came, hung out for an afternoon and went home. She was probably there for weeks, if not months. Very likely, because it would have been a long walk. Uh, not that she would have walked, they probably carried her. But here's where the fun comes in. There are traditions in Ethiopia that when the Bible here says that Solomon sent her away with everything she desired, that included a child that she actually desired to be impregnated by Solomon. And we know Solomon. Who is he to turn down a pretty girl, right? He, when we get to chapter 11, we're going to see his, his thousand lovers, right? So might as well throw the Queen of Sheba on there and make it a thousand and one. But that's what tradition tells us, not in scripture, but it's what tradition tells us is that one of the things she wanted from Solomon was a child. And so that she went back to Ethiopia pregnant. Now the tradition goes on that her son ruled as king. And the Ethiopians claim that the last king in Solomon's line was a guy by the name of Hali Selassie. Say that three times fast. If you want to know how to spell it, H-A-I-L-E-S-E-L-A-S-S-I-E. -S 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 -E, Hali Selassie. And they claim that they have the genealogical records to prove that Hali Selassie was a direct descendant of Solomon. He died in 1974. Right now, he was deposed before that when the communists came in and took over Ethiopia. But um, he died in 1974. So there's a reality, at least according to tradition and possibility and the claims of those in Ethiopia who say they have these records uh, that a descendant of Solomon ruled in Ethiopia until the early 1900s and lived. There was a descendant of his alive until 1974. Now, I don't know if they continued to keep the records after he was deposed uh, or what happened to his kids or if he had kids, but that's kind of cool if you ask me. Now, that is all Ethiopian tradition. We can't prove it. The Bible doesn't say it. Uh, but it's kind of fun to think about. So now we got this fun little wood, algum wood. Um, we don't actually know what algum wood is. The argument is that Ophir, right, we get back to the scholars, they argue that Ophir was either on the eastern coast of Africa, down by Ethiopia, or it was actually India, or somewhere around India in Asia. We don't know. However, we know that Pharaoh sent naval expeditions to modern-day Somalia, and we know that Solomon built ships and sent them out to bring wealth back to him. So it's altogether possible that it's on the eastern coast of Africa somewhere or that it was actually India. And there's, uh, I, I, tr I looked, I, I wanted to figure out, and, and there's like 20, 30 guesses. There's all kinds of guesses to what Algamwood is. What we do know um, is that he used it to make steps for the house of the Lord, and he used it to make musical instruments. Verse 14. We're going to take verse 14 quickly. Or verse 14 through 29, we're going to take quickly. And I wrote this in my notes. The ridiculousness of Solomon's wealth. The ridiculousness. The weight of gold that came to Solomon yearly was 666 talents of gold. 
Now, if that number sounds familiar, you can uh, go up and look at it. It's in Revelation 13, 18. It's the number of the beast and the number of man. Just this amount of gold was worth $20,587,000 a year in today's market. Kind of insane. Verse 15, besides that, from the traveling merchants, from the income of traders, from all the kings of Arabia, and from the governors of the country, and King Saul, right, that's besides that, right? All these other people were giving him gold as well. King Solomon made 200 large shields of hammered gold, 600 shekels of gold went into each shield. He also made 300 shields of hammered gold, three minas of gold went into each shield. The king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon, right? He built all these shields out of gold and then he just stored them. Because what else was he going to do with them? Right? You, you couldn't, a gold shield would make no sense in battle. Gold is too soft to protect you. He just made them because he could. More of the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with pure gold. Why? I mean, just why? Make it, how comfortable would it be to sit on a throne of ivory covered in gold? I mean, you'd look pretty sweet sitting up there, but just why? Right? They don't tell us how much the ivory's worth, but it's, it's just insane. But it, it gets better. Verse 19, the throat had six steps. And the top of the throne was rounded at back. There were armrests on either side of the place of the seat. And two lions stood beside the armrest. Twelve lions stood there, one on each side of the six steps. Nothing like this had been made for any other kingdom. So he had twelve lions carved. We're not told what they're made out of. I am guessing they were also made out of ivory covered with gold. Guessing. Right? We're not told. But six steps leading up to his multi-million dollar throne with carved lions. One on each side of the steps leading up to the throne. I'm thinking at this point, Solomon's getting a little big for his britches. Verse 21. All of his Solomon's drinking vessels were gold. All the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon, which is kind of like a vacation home for him, were pure gold. Not one was silver, for this was accounted as nothing in the days of Solomon. Everything was made of gold to the point that silver was made worthless. Now the king had merchant ships at sea with the fleet of Hiram. Once every three years, the merchant ships came bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and monkeys. Why? Why do you need apes and monkeys? So King Solomon surpassed all the kings of the earth in riches and wisdom. Now all the, king, all the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. Each man brought his presence, articles of silver, gold, garments, armor, spices, horses, mules, at a set rate year by year. So every year they wanted to come up and get wisdom from Solomon, and they came up with millions of dollars worth of gifts every single time. And Solomon gathered chariots and horsemen. He had 1,000, uh, 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and went with the king at Jerusalem. The king made silver as common as Jeru in Jerusalem as stones. He made cedar trees as abundant as the sycamores, which are in the lowland. And Solomon had horses imported from Egypt and Keva. The king's merchants brought them in Keva at the current price. Now a chariot that was imported from Egypt cost 600 shekels of silver and a horse 150. And thus, through their agents, they exported them all, the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Wow. Uh, now these merchant ships up there in verse 22, these were the merchant ships of Tarshish. So we have one set of ships, the, the set of ships that was described with Hiram, they were going to Africa and India or wherever they were. Now, the merchant ships of Tarshish were the ones on the Mediterranean Sea. Remember, Tarshish is where uh, um, Jonah meant to flee. He went to Joppa and got on a ship headed for Tarshish. Uh, where Tarshish is is still argued, but some think it was actually England uh, is where Jonah was heading, but um, it wasn't England at the time. We don't know. 
Uh, but he had one set of ships circling around the Mediterranean Sea, one set of ships circling around Africa and Asia, bringing him back just ridiculous amounts of wealth. It is estimated that Solomon is the richest man who's ever lived. Right? Beyond Jeff Bezos, beyond Elon Musk, the richest man that ever lived. And when you read about this, you go, yeah, I, I, I could see that. Now, you don't have to turn there, but I'm going to remind you of something we talked about in Deuteronomy 17. This is where we're going to close. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 through 17. When you come to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your brethren you shall set his king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Now God knew when they came into the land, God wanted to rule over them, right? He wanted it to be a theocracy. He wanted to set judges over them. He wanted the priests to be able to solve issues regarding the law. And they said, we want a king like the nations around us. So they got Saul and then they got David and we went from there. And he told them that they were going to do this. But this is now the instructions for the king. He shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For the Lord has said, you shall not return that way again. Verse 29. Verse 28, Solomon had horses imported from Egypt. Direct violation of what God told him to do. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. And chapter 11, verse 3, he had 700 wives. And 300 concubines. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of thinking 700 wives would fall into the category of multiplying wives. Direct violation of what God commanded the king. The last one, there's actually two more, but the last one that applies at this point. Neither shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. The last command was that he was supposed to write his own copy of the law. And we're not told if David or Solomon ever did that, or Saul or David or Solomon ever did that. Um, so simple. Don't go back to Egypt to get horses. Don't multiply your wives, and don't multiply your silver and gold. And Solomon looked at that and said, eh, it doesn't apply to me. And he did it all. Now, I think there are times in our sinful nature when we think we can get away with certain sins. Or maybe we think that certain parts of the Bible don't apply to us. Now, even Solomon, in all his wisdom and all of his wealth, failed. When we get into chapter 11, which we've gotten a couple glimpses of, we're going to see his downfall. And as we study the chapters following, we will see how it led to the downfall of all of Israel. One man disobeying God. And it had a trickle-down effect that destroyed the nation. So there's two thoughts I want to close with. I'm going to give you homework. I don't know if anybody ever does the homework I assign. My wife does, I know that. Um, but your homework this week is to go read the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes, which was written by Solomon, admits something very simple, that all of his pursuits, all of his wealth, all of his building project, everything that he had were absolutely worthless. He finally he got to a place, I'm kind of thinking Ecclesiastes was Solomon's um, book of repentance, kind of like his journal. Uh, we're going to talk more about that next week. But basically, he admits, you know what? Everything I've done in my entire life was worthless. And he ends the book in chapter 12, verse 13, by saying this. 
Let us hear the conclusion of the whole of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is man's all. He finally figured it out. He figured it out too late. At least too late for his son. But he eventually figured it out. My second thought comes from Jesus himself. Matthew 16, 24 through 26, Jesus said, He said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. I don't think Solomon ever denied himself anything. And take up his cross, which is a way of saying that we submit to the will of God, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, I can't imagine anything. You know, I can't imagine that the the devil could come up to me uh, with whatever offering and say, here, take this in exchange for your soul. Now, I can't imagine that he could put anything on that plate that would make me say yes. I can't imagine. But what caused Solomon to fall? Lust. Well, y'all know me. I got a problem with lust. What else made Solomon fall? Pride. You know me. I got a problem with pride. Because, you know, Satan's not going to come with a silver platter and say, here. Right? Here's, here's 700 concubines or whatever in exchange for your soul. He's not how he's going to do it. It's going to be subtle. I guarantee Solomon's downfall was gradual. Because Satan's just a lot smarter than that. But there's nothing I want more than Jesus. Now, there's times we stumble. There's times that with what I, that what I want most, which is Jesus, and what I want now will collide. But don't let that stumble lead to a falling away. Instead, let it drive you back to the throne of God, the throne of his mercy and grace, where we are promised that we can find help in our times of need. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, I ask that you would help us to learn from it. It's so easy to study these things. It's so easy to wrap our mind around it, to understand on some level that we need to listen to it. Father, it's just as easy to walk away as though we have forgotten what our face looked like in that mirror. So God, I pray that you wouldn't let us do that. I pray that your spirit would quicken our hearts and minds to remember these things, to apply them, that by your grace and strength we would walk them out for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.